Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. Good morning, Thrive. How are we today? Who's coming next Sunday to Disc Golf Sunday? Oh, man, that was weak. <laughs> All right, do me a favor. Go to the Facebook page and uh, just click on the event page that you're going, okay? Next Sunday was, will be the sign-up time. So we're hoping some disc golfers who don't know the Lord come out next Sunday, and we're going to share the Lord with them, uh, and that will be awesome, and I'm excited for that day. But uh, please do sign up. When I was a kid, wrestling was awesome. <laughs> How many people remember that if you're, if you're a man, at some point in your life you watch wrestling, right? Right? That's part of growing up. You have to watch wrestling. If you were a young boy at some point and never watched wrestling, uh, we apologize for your lack of fathering. And uh, we will walk you through it. I, I'm not into wrestling now. I mean, I, I'll cheer it on, but it doesn't do anything. But when I was a kid, the man's man, who was he? Hulk Hogan, thank you. That's right. Some of you are like going way back like uh, uh, to, to Jerry Lawler or something like that. But, but Hulk Hogan was like, we thought that is the measure of what a man is, Right? And he's huge. He was gigantic. And I'm mad over the years. I've met a few guys who were pro wrestlers. Uh, I actually brought a couple of them in one time who did like strongman stuff. And, uh, and they, are, they are as big in real life as they look on TV. Just their arms are the size of my face. Um, and they're, they're just huge. And as the years have gone on, uh, now I didn't watch his reality show, but he had one, right? Uh, with his family and stuff, and you found out uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, his life, his life wasn't great. He had struggles. He had issues, right? How many of us over our years have watched somebody who was like a hero to us, and then your heroes let you down, right? Some people even have that rule, don't meet your heroes, because you find out they're not who they you, who you thought they were, who you wanted them to be. A lot of people have that rule. Now, some of us have met our heroes, and they were even better than we thought they'd be, right? Some of you met William Shatner, and you're just like, he's, he's just amazing. Good for you. That's awesome. There was one guy, and it's really neat, because you can watch his documentary. I think it's on Amazon. There's one guy who when I was at a youth conference, when I was in seventh grade, the very first youth conference I ever went to, and I was so pumped. I'm 12 years old. I'm like, this is going to be awesome, you know. And we went, and uh, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, was there, the wrestler. And you're like, who is that? He was a wrestler. You can look him up. And the crowd of people was like this, and here's Ted DiBiase. <laughs> Like, this is the highest person, and he's taller than all of us by a good foot. Just, just a big, massive dude. But what was cooler was I watched Ted DiBiase at that thing respond to the altar calls and weep. He was there with some other youth group. I don't remember who. I don't remember what. And you can actually watch. I think it's called The Price of Fame. You can actually watch. It's his testimony put into a biography, and it's now on, I, I know it's on Amazon Prime, and it's on a few other things. You can rent it if you want to and stream it. It's pretty neat. And I think he was asked a thousand times, is wrestling real? <laughs> you know, this is back when we didn't understand things in the 80s. And, uh, and, but just, he was like a hero, like right in front of me. And then you watch the biography, and it's, it's an awesome story, but you find out his life was a mess. For many years. The book of Titus is a letter 
to a young man named Titus from the apostle Paul to spell out to him. Titus is like a spiritual son to Paul, and he's trying to spell out to Titus, this is what it looks like to be a church, to be a man or woman of God. This is what it is to walk this out. You find out if you live long enough, your heroes are those who are consistent and who have integrity and are those who are honorable and are faithful and make it the long haul. Those are the heroes. It's not the ones who do just amazing things. I had a teacher at Bible college that he was my hero. His marriage fell apart. Yeah, and I think she passed away before they divorced, but they were on their way to divorce. There might have been infidelity. And he's remarried now, and I think he's kind of estranged from some of his kids. How did that happen? He was my hero. We've watched ministry people fall like crazy in the last few years. And I don't think it's stopping anytime soon. Why? Because they didn't understand the very thing that Paul spells out in Titus what it looks like to be a man or woman of God. Right now, we're a lot more interested in flash and what draws people instead of formation and being discipled. I had an amazing pastor growing up, but you know what? He wasn't a great speaker, but he knew how to love and disciple people. And he was a better pastor than a lot of pastors I've known. How many guys know somebody who can speak really well, but they're not a great leader? Because their lives don't add up. I'd rather have somebody, now let's have both, let's go for both, but let's, let's if, if we're going to choose character over talent, let's pick character every time. Choose integrity over gifting. I'd rather have somebody who shows up faithfully than the person who, when they show up, they show off. Right? You know, the person we've just, we're starting our circles, those are our small groups, if you don't know, and grab a handout at the sheet uh, at, at the welcome table, because we want you in one. It's how communities developed. It's how you develop relationships. Just grab one, pick one, and except for the men's one, they're all for everybody. Okay, and we would love you, and you can be in more than one. If you're just a circle junkie, go ahead and go. But you ever been in like a small group or a circle setting, and there's that one person who's never come before, comes in at about week seven, and just dominates the nights. Just like, you know what else I learned about the Bible? I don't know, but I bet you're going to tell me. <laughs> For the next 20 minutes. And you're like, I asked a question about where's the bathroom. You know, they just... And you're, right then, you're like, the, the character's not there. <laughs> they, they have flash, but they don't have character. Well, Titus is all about that, and numerous other things. But it starts right there, what a measure of a man or woman of God looks like. And just so you know what book we're diving into, take a look at this, and you're going to find out about Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past, and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now, Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. And the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors, and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so, from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now, we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. 
It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. So Paul opens the whole thing by reminding Titus that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that is, the life of the new creation, that is available starting now through Jesus the Messiah. And this hope was promised long ago by the God who does not lie. Now, this little opening comment introduces an important theme underlying the whole letter. One of the problems in the Cretan churches was that they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, to their ideas about the Greek gods that they grew up with, specifically Zeus, their chief god. Cretan people claimed that Zeus was actually born on their island, and they loved to tell stories and mythologies about Zeus's underhanded character. He would seduce women and lie to get his way. And Paul wants to be really clear. The God revealed through Jesus is totally different than Zeus. His basic character traits are faithfulness and truth, which means the Christian way of life will be about truth also, which will be a real change for these Cretans. So Paul then addresses Titus with a twofold task. He says the first one is to appoint new leaders for each church community, a team of what he calls elders, mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is totally different from Cretan culture. They are to be known for integrity, total devotion to Jesus, for self-control and generosity, both in their families and in the community at large. And these new leaders are to teach the good news about Jesus and replace the corrupt leaders who need to be confronted. That's Titus's second task. Paul identifies the teachers as those of the circumcision. In other words, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Paul says that they're obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And to top it off, they're just in the church leadership business to make money. And so Paul, in a brilliant move, he pulls a quote from an ancient Cretan poet, Epimenides, who was very frank and honest about the character of his own people. He said Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. They blur the lines between true and false, between good and evil, and they're just in it for the money. And so while these leaders claim to know God, their Cretan way of life denies him. All right, you'll see more of that in the next coming weeks. So let's read from Titus 1. Let's just start there together. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent to proclaim faith to those who God has chosen and teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. So that's what he's saying. He's setting up right now, I'm going to show you how to live a godly life. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It's by the command of God our Savior that I've been entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my son in the faith that we share, my true son in the faith. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. And his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He mustn't be arrogant or quick-tempered. He mustn't be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what's good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching. 
and they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true. So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who've turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. But nothing's pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They're detestable, disobedient, and worthless for doing anything good. Paul starts the letter with, you're my son in the faith, and there's some major things wrong in the church. Now, we can relate to that right now, because there's a lot of things wrong in westernized churches. I can't speak to the church in China. I think they're doing better than we are. I can't speak to the church in South America. I don't know much about it. But I do know Western, especially more evangelical churches, we have made Christianity light in order to make Christians. We've made profit off of things we shouldn't be profiting off of. And so he speaks to them and he says, this is wrong, and I'm going to give you the list of what it looks like to be a man or woman of God. He, and he says, this is, to be an elder, you've got to have this. Now some of you would be like, well, I'm not an elder, I don't want to be an elder, this doesn't apply to me. And I would tell you, this is the model of what it looks like to grow up in Jesus. This is not a suggestion list if you ever want to be in leadership. This is a call to every Christian to grow up. There are five Greek words that talk about the phases of Christian maturity. And they basically break down like the phases of life. Infant, toddler, adolescent, adult, and a parent. Our five phases of thriving, it's on our table out there, is modeled after that. And this is speaking to that, and it's telling everybody, become an adult and a parent in the faith. Most Christians in the Western world, for about the last 30 years, stop at adolescence. They have opinions, and they do little. They go to things, but they don't grow at things. So they're good, but they're not great. And often, when you're an adolescent, when hard things come, your faith is shaken and sometimes robbed. But adults in the faith learn that's not how it works. How many of you, right, it's easier to leave your marriage in year one or two than it is in year 22, right? Because you have history and you realize marriage is tough. Dig in, press on, grow up. That's what we learn. But in year one, man, it was like, man, I can get out of this now, unscathed, you know, a couple of things. I just move a few things. Because you you grow. You set roots. And when they grow out, right, it should never be easy to just leave a church. It should never be easy to leave a family. It should never be easy, right, because roots grow. But the first thing he starts with is verse 2, God does not lie. Another version says, God is not a man that he should lie. God is not like us, which is really good news. God isn't like you and I. He doesn't break his word. He doesn't drop the ball. He's never like, oh man, I did not see that coming. God doesn't lie. Now, it doesn't mean every single promise that's in the Bible is 100% for you in all situations. Right? Are the truths of the Bible, the promise of the Bible for us? Yes, but not always directly applied to us like they were then. But God is a God that does not lie. He doesn't break his word. He doesn't not show up. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. And if he says he's going to hold us to a standard, he's going to hold us to a standard. Some of us are like, well, you know... The world, like, it's, if the government says it's legal, God's okay with it. That is not true. <laughs> God does not move when government does. Which is good news. 
But some days, right, it's easy, well, because what happens when government says it's okay, they think God's saying it's okay. No. God set up institution between one man and one woman as marriage, and that's it. Well, the government says it's okay. All right. Government says a lot of things. I don't believe most of them. I believe the Lord. His word stands the test of time. He doesn't lie. All of these civilizations over the last 10,000 plus years of history and the last 2,000 since Jesus changed and come and gone. God's word remains the same. I had a friend years ago when we went and checked out a Bible college. We went and saw it and, and he, he said to me, he said, oh, because we were all praying and saying, should we go to this school? I ended up going to that school. It's where Colin is now. But, but, but I had a friend who came with and he said, oh, I, I felt like God was saying to me to go here too. And then I said, all right, Lord, I, I will if you want me to. And then, they, and then he said, and then the Lord said, no, I was just testing you. You don't have to go here. And I, even when I was like 15, I remember thinking, man, that, that doesn't sound right. And you know why it doesn't sound right? Because God's not a liar. God isn't a deceiver. Does God test us? Sure. But God doesn't play games with us. And God never tests us to prove something to him. God tests us to sh- expose our hearts. God already knows. God didn't test Abraham to be like, are you faithful? Oh, whoo. Good thing Abraham's faithful because I would have looked stupid. That is not what God does when he allows us to be tested. And God didn't set my friend up for an honest answer so that God would be relieved. No. Here's what I really think happened. I think the Lord told my friend something he didn't want to hear. He said no or said, well, okay. And then he gave himself his own Holy Spirit voice that said, you don't got to do it. I'm just testing you. I'm just messing with you. Does that sound like the Holy Spirit? I'm just joshing you. Because <laughs> if that sounds like the Holy Spirit to you, read your Bible more. Because <laughs> you're way off. He does, he does ask us to be obedient and do things that we're not always comfortable with, but he doesn't lie. And he doesn't pull bait and switches on us. He can, he can surprise us. And we have to understand that if we're going to follow this God... Sometimes it's going to be awesome, and sometimes it's going to be rough. But we have to make a decision, especially right now. If you want to be a Christ follower, you're going to have to stop following culture. Because we cannot do both anymore. They are separate lanes. I've been trying to write a book. I'm like three or four chapters in. But it's the idea of this middle lane. You know, we all have them around here. There's a lot of them. Like, when you're driving down the road, there's like a giant middle lane that we can turn in, right? That's your turning lane. You can pull over into, right? If we're just driving down the road, there's a lot of, a lot of you know, one lane's this way or a couple, a couple lanes going that way. And then there's the middle lane where you can turn or pull over into, right? Christianity, for many years, lived by the middle lane, in the Western world. And it's where we can navigate and try and get people to start going our direction. But if you drive on a road long enough, right, or if a road is around long enough, what's going to happen? Construction's going to come. Narrows are gonna, roads are going to narrow. And all of a sudden, that middle lane goes away, and you got one thin yellow line. Right? If I am driving down, if I'm driving down Pharaoh right here, and I try and pretend like there's a middle line, there's no middle lane. There's a yellow line, and that's it. But if I try and negotiate that, what's going to happen? I'm going to hit somebody or get hit. And that is what the church is still trying to do, negotiate a middle space that is no longer there. We have to make a decision. Am I going to be with Christ, or am I going to be with culture? Because I cannot go both anymore. The middle lane is gone. But the good news to that is we know where we stand and who we stand with. So he tells Titus this. God doesn't lie, and if you're going to be with him, here's what it's going to look like for you to grow. One, verse five, blameless or above reproach. 
The rest kind of fall underneath this. But what does above reproach mean? It means you don't even give somebody the room to point the finger at you. The Bible actually says in the book of Revelation, there's a title for the devil, one of his titles. He's got a few. But does anybody know what I'm talking about, which title I'm talking about? Say it louder. The accuser. He's the one standing there saying, you better do this. You should have done that. Why don't you do this? I don't know if you know this, but we're now in what was a partially good movement, the Me Too movement, and there was good in that because there were men who abused women and used their power to do it. But I don't know if you know this, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes women have lied as well. Do I think women regularly lie about that? No. I think men are much more prone to lie about that. But women have. I don't know why. I don't know what would motivate that. And can that go both ways? It can. But a man or woman of God puts themselves in a position to not let somebody point the finger. For example, if there's a day where a woman in this church is stuck and needs a ride home. Am I willing to? Sure, but somebody's going to be with me. Billy Graham had this rule. Right? It's called the Billy Graham rule, and I'll tell you why. Billy Graham had a rule that said he will be with the opposite sex never alone. And the reason why was because I believe somewhere in the 1950s and 60s, he was set up for an interview, walked into an interview, and in the room were naked women and prostitutes, and they started flashing pictures. It was a setup to try and remove him and destroy his reputation. It was false. It was a lie. So he had to make this rule. He'll never go in the room first, and he'll never be alone with a woman of the opposite sex ever. For the most part, I've kept the same rule. Mike Pence, who a lot of people made fun of, for that rule. They called him a sexist and a chauvinist. How dare you have that rule? And here's what's funny. They did until a thing happened called the Me Too movement. And all of a sudden, all the accusations against Mike Pence were gone. Why? Because when you don't give the enemy room to accuse, the accuser eventually has to shut up. Men and women of God, I charge you, become people who are above reproach. Don't even give the enemy room. The enemy's going to accuse you even when you're right. Why give him room? And don't get me wrong, we're people of grace. If I need to have a meeting with Michelle, who does admin for me, can I meet her at Panera? Sure, but it's going to be in public. See what I'm saying? I can meet her. But my wife knows where I am what I'm doing, who I'm with, and I'm in public. But I won't have that meeting at my house alone. I just won't. And if she does, then my kids are there. (laughs) And I know my kids will tell, (laughs) right? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Good. That's the way we want it. Being above reproach. And that's not just, I'm not talking about just lust and attraction, anything, right? If you're at work and you're like, man, if I move that decibel point, I can get a little more in my bank account. Be above reproach. Don't ever do it and let somebody know that you wouldn't do it. Above reproach in everything. Don't give the enemy an inch because he will always take a mile. Quick side note. There's an old saying, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you can afford. And what's funny is it's a counterfeit of the call of God, because the call of God is the same thing. The call of God will take you further than you could ever go alone, keep you when you never thought you could make it there, but it will cost you more than you feel like you want to give. It's a counterfeit. Sin's a counterfeit for the call of God. It's destructive. But if we say, you know what? I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. And I'm cutting it out. Jesus said, cut off your hand if it makes you fall. Now, Jesus wasn't being literal, right? 
where you'd have a lot of people walking around, mostly teenage boys with no hands at all. <laughs> You'll figure it out. Um, it's just part of life, right? It is part of the deal. But here's the thing. What Jesus is making a strong point, and he's saying if it causes you to stumble, cut it out. Some things cause people to stumble that don't cause other people to stumble. And I'll give you a quick example, and then we're going to move on. Alcohol does not cause me to stumble. I have no temptation towards it, but I also won't touch it. Because my parents and my grandparents, you know, and numerous people in my family were alcoholics. So it, it can literally run in your system, right? You have a bent towards it. And that's okay. My, both my wife's parents were alcoholics. So I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to go nowhere near it. And I, there's been no opportunity in my life that somebody was like, oh, you don't drink? Well, then I don't want Jesus. That's never happened to me. Okay? I'm not saying it hasn't happened to somebody. It may have. It just hasn't to me. But that being said, not everybody's in the spot I'm in. Not everybody has the same, but some things that, that, that don't bother me would bother you, right? Some of you, certain violence in movies, you're just like, I just can't. It messes with my head. It hurts my heart. For me, it blesses my heart. I just love seeing stuff blow up. Like, it's just awesome. Like, men being men, like, come on. Yes, Braveheart, bring it on. All right, so we're all different. But some of you, some of you, you're, you're just like, no, it's... It needs to be about, like, ladies' soccer teams falling in love, and that's what I want. Good for you. Hallmark movies make me stumble. I hate them. Just burn rage in me. All right, so um, next, faithful in marriage. If you're struggling, struggle, man, it's so easy. Like, you could... Not look at things on your phone like directly, but just scroll and stuff's going to come up. So simple, so easy, so destructive. And I'd encourage you, and it, I, I'm a man too. I'm very happily married to somebody way out of my league, but I'm still human. We can all struggle, we can all stumble. Whatever's causing you to struggle and stumble, cut it out. If you're a husband, be a husband of one woman. Your eyes, you are a one-woman man in your eyes and your heart and your mind all the time. Ladies, same for you. And if you're like, well, you don't understand what I'm going through. You're right. I don't. But Jesus does, and he still said this. Run from the things that would destroy you. There's, 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 there's nothing worth it. Nothing worth it. I don't know anybody who's committed adultery and looked back and were like, that was a good idea. <laughs> I'm glad I did that. Nobody. Nobody. Except somebody who's living in sin. It's destructive. Run. Run the opposite direction. And the opposite direction isn't just into the arms of your spouse. It's into the arms of Jesus. Because you have no clue what God can do to your spouse. He can wreck their lives for them so much. And you can fall in love with them all over again and even better. He can totally do it. I know it. I've watched it happen. And it's awesome. Be faithful. Be faithful in your life. Your home's in order. You want to be a people of God? Your kids should be following Jesus. I know people who believe they are committed, mature, awesome followers of Jesus, and their kids are lost, man. Totally gone. And they're like, well, they made their own decision. Yeah. Now, it's one thing to say, I tried and they made a choice to rebel. Yeah, we cannot control. Paul is not talking about people who openly choose rebellion. We are not responsible for all our kids' choices. You're not. But there's a whole other category of people who say, well, you know, I, I can't help that all seven of my kids decided to be Satan worshipers. I have a feeling you played a role. Right? Somewhere along the way, you did something that really messed things up. That sent them on the wrong trajectory. You know, years ago when we were planning a church, you had to take this assessment thing. And don't, I'm not bragging on myself. I'm, I can be a ba way better father than I am. 
can always grow, but it, it was kind of a neat moment for me. You had to take this church planter's assessment. Basically, they just don't want people who are going to be bad at this doing it. And, and I took the test, and I turned it, and my coach called me up, and he said, well, you passed except for one thing. And I was like, what? What is it? What's the one thing? And he said, well, you said you put family before ministry, which I don't think I can fail you for. I just haven't seen before. Yet, two, it's encouraging to me. It's kind of messed up, though, too, right? Like, you're like, most church planners you know will throw their family under the bus for the sake of ministry. Not me. No. If my kids are following Jesus... My wife loves me and I love her. The rest is gravy. If that's in order, the rest will come. But if this is great and this is a mess, you got nothing. Man, do everything you can so that your kids and your spouse follow Jesus. You're like, well, my kid doesn't want to go to youth group. Uh huh. Do they want to go to school? <laughs> Bet you they don't every day. But you make them. Why? Well, that's, that's important just to get through life. Oh, I see. So their education is more important than their eternity. Wrong. Man, I'm so tired of parents saying, I don't want to force this on my kids. Why not? You don't, if you have your own choice about your kid's eternity and where they will spend an eternity in heaven or in hell and you don't want to force it on them, that's child abuse. Now don't drag them, don't physically restrain. I'm not saying get rope and duct tape and do illegal things. That is not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not a psycho. What I am saying is saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I pour Jesus out on you and get Jesus in and around your life as much as I can till I have no more say anymore. My son's away at Bible college. I don't know what he's doing most of the time. I think he's doing great. But now it's up to him, and I gave him what I had. Our kids should be following Jesus, and if they're not, correct. It's time to correct. Hit the brakes on whatever it is and correct well, my kids are doing great in school, and they're doing awesome in sports, and they're doing, they just, you know, they, they're, not with, they're not with the Lord. Man, I would stop everything, and I would go after that with everything I got. It is astounding to me, and, and I don't think we have any baseball parents in here, so I'll use this analogy because I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to talk to them. If this is for you, it's from the Lord, not me. But it is astounding to me. Just right, right here, I'll use this. We just passed a giant soccer field that's filled with kids playing soccer. Every Sunday, hundreds, maybe thousands of students playing soccer there every single week. I guarantee you, some of those families know they should be with the Lord and with his people. And they're not. Because their kids' sports matter to them more than their eternity. And here's, here's the dumbest part about it. Most of your kids, they ain't going pro. Like, I had to sit my kids, my boys down early, like, look, we ain't going to be in the NBA. <laughs> Just ain't here. <laughs> Sorry. We don't have those kind of genetics. Maybe if you want to be a jockey, <laughs> you know, focus. I can't afford a horse either. <laughs> Home in order. But the idea of this whole section is integrity. So here's the picture. Here's what integrity means. Integrity means you are solid and whole. It does not mean you are perfect and without flaws. So if I took this awesome brick that Marty got me and I pour water all over it, can you see that it's wet? Right, but could I still stand on it? Right, so cement is porous. It can get wet, but it doesn't cave in. That's what integrity is. And if you have a thick enough, strong enough foundation, water can leak in, but the house isn't going to crumble. That's what integrity is.
This is what it is to be a mature man and woman of God. Doesn't mean you don't struggle or stumble, but the house doesn't collapse when you make a mistake because the house isn't made of mistakes. It's built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Not arrogant. So it's the one probably saying, we all have grace for things, right? We all have things like, I'm very patient with, person, with a person who struggled with this or that, right? Often because we struggled with this or that, right? thing I don't have a lot of grace for is arrogant people. I'm, I'm just bad at it. I'm always like, if you think you're too good for me, you are. Because <laughs> if you're just like, you know, I am awesome. <laughs> like, that's your personality? Good for you. You probably won't stay here long because I just have so little. And part of it, part of it is something that's got to change in me because God has grace for it, 100%. And the other part of it is a God, is a God design because pride is what took the enemy down. Pride is the greatest sin and the hardest one to overcome. It's worse than lust. It's worse than greed. It's worse than it because it refuses to look at itself and see itself as wrong. And I would tell you, if you struggle for, with pride, that's okay, you're not alone. Many have, many in the Bible, and the Lord will redeem you. But confess it. Bring it to the Lord and say, God, change me. I do, I get, I just, man, I can stare at the mirror for hours. Some of us laugh, but some people really do struggle with that. I am not one of them. I, if I look in the mirror too long, I hear voices. So, all right. Not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. We all have seasons where we're on edge. Right? We all have times and seasons where it's just difficult not to lose it. And I'm not talking about that. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about, hey, I got a flat tire and, uh, and a bird, you know, pooped on me and uh, my boss said my job is on the line and, uh, and I lost my wallet. This is all, you know, in the first two hours I woke up and you're irritable. Yeah, understandable. You can't stay there, but we understand. Okay, quick to fly off the handle though. If you are somebody who regularly flies off the handle, you need to start getting your hands off the wheel. And you need to start getting your face before the Lord because if you regularly fly off the handle, something's broken in your life. And the longer you live, the easier it is to come into seasons like this. You're overwhelmed. You're discouraged. You're depressed and you don't know it. And you just start losing it. Rookie mistake is the, the guy who says to his wife all the time, you got to respect me. I'm always like, oh. You're such a rookie. <laughs> you, you're new. <laughs> like, man, you earn that place. You'll learn that in your wife's heart in time. You'll win that. Live it. Some people are like, well, the husband's supposed to be the leader of the home. Yeah, mostly by modeling. Mostly by the way we live, not by what we try and get them to learn. We do teach in our home, but mostly we live it. Because nobody knows our hypocrisy more than our spouse. And it goes both ways. Yes, it does. For sure. But what if we got to the place that says, Man, I'm going to just humble myself and I'm going I'm to become somebody who learns to respond instead of react. If you're like, man, I just fly off the handle all the time and I hate it. There's most people who are regularly angry like that don't want to be. You begin to ask the Holy Spirit, God, change me. Change me from within. Here's, here's the best thing. Proverbs says it, right? If you don't know what to say, then just shut up. All you want to do is blow up, then shut up. Because at least when you say something, you can say it measured. Slow down, break, cool off. If you're in a contentious relationship or marriage right now, and like, man, it just gets heated so often, so quick, 
How many times do you allow each other to take a break for a minute or two or an hour? There are times it gets so heated and it's like we just don't give each other, afford each other any grace to just go cool off for a minute. How many of us, we got up the next morning and we're like, why did I fight like that? What was wrong with me? It's like you're on a wrath binge and then you sleep and you're hungover from your rage and you're like, why? Why was I like that? We've all done it. You're all sitting, there's a bunch of you like, uh-huh, 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 yeah. And the Bible says, no, don't do it. Stop, slow down, hit the brakes. We all will get angry. That is humanity. And even the design of God gets angry, but he gets angry the righteous way. When somebody does something to my daughter and I don't like it, mostly your brothers, <laughs> I confront it and I'm usually angry. I'm not mean, but I'm angry. And they know it because that's my daughter. She may be your sister or this may be your mom, but that's my wife and that's my daughter. And you will not talk to them that way. And then when I do, I apologize to my wife and my daughter for talking to them that way. We slow down and we hit the brakes. We should not, we're not wusses. We're not people who don't get angry and show no anger and no emotion. And we're always just night. We're all, we, men of God are not Mr. Rogers, okay? But they're also not Mr. Wrath. Next one is overindulgence, specifically not being a heavy drinker. But the greater narrative there would be overindulging your own life. I have no issue with anybody drinking alcohol as long as they do it measured. Say, Jesus drank. Jesus did. It's very obvious. I have great issue with drunkenness, because it's a sin. It's clear in the Bible. Some of you are like, what about gummies, Pastor Brian? Are gummies okay? <laughs> no. I'm, not, I'm just going to be honest. You, it's instant intoxication. Intoxication is sin, according to the word of God. It's a sin. It's just, I'm not against you. I am against sin. And in my own life, and do you know why we're against sin? Because it destroys. It doesn't bring life. It's destructive. It hurts us. We do things we don't want to do. Well, some of you, not me. I do it in my home. You know, when I'm watching the Grateful Dead videos. That's all the, the only time I'm doing it. Like, maybe, maybe not. What I do know is if the Lord says don't do it, He's got a reason, and it's always good. Run from overindulgence in your life. Run from it. You can do it in marriage. You can allow certain things in the bedroom and then go too far. Don't do it. It's destructive. In every arena of our life, we are, in Timothy it says this, and really the books of Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus are like partner books because they're the only letters to his spiritual sons, and there's a lot of commonality and crossover. One of the things he says in the books of Timothy, he says temperance or balance. We've got to be balanced in every area of our life to a point that says this far and no further. Some of you are great at making money, but you don't know when to stop. And you're out of balance. Some of you are great at, at, at just loving your kids and putting them first and, and being great moms and dads, but you don't know when to say, you know what, I'm indulging their selfishness, and i got to stop. These are the things that when men, men and women of God learn to grow up into and figure out in their lives. Right? Okay, we just finished the 21 days of fasting. And at the end of that, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to go to a Brazilian steakhouse and just like keep it coming. Why don't you just leave those sticks here, go get yourself some new sticks, and keep that meat train coming. And you know what? One of the days, I definitely ate too much right after. Just one. And the next day after that, my body let me know what I did wrong and caused me to repent. 
I won't go any further with that. All right. Dishonest with money. Some of us are just dishonest with our money. Some of, uh, some of you guys, I just feel like prompted to say this, some of you with your spouses, you have separate bank accounts. You don't want them to know what you make and vice versa. What I tell you is you're deceived and you're hurting your marriage. Cut it out. Joint those up and work it out. And if you need help, we're here for you. We'll walk with you. There's no, there's no life in that. It's destructive. Some of you have decided, I don't need to tithe because the New Testament doesn't command it. New Testament doesn't command a lot of things, but we still honor them. New Testament doesn't command the Sabbath, but we rest. Some of you, you're just being dishonest with yourself and the Lord. You're not being dishonest with me or Thrive. It's the Lord. We get so good at being comfortable where we don't want God to touch something. But is that who we want to be where we don't want God in a certain arena of our life? Is that really what we want to be? Now, I've had seasons in my life where I've been thinner, but I've never in my entire life been sk- That's not true. When I was five, I, was, I had a kicking bod. Okay, but after that, right? But that being said, I battle. I battle like crazy against gluttony in my own life. I go long amounts of time not eating the right things. And I have genetics against me and other things. I come from the land of obese leprechauns. It's just who we, who my family, if you, if you saw me with my extended family on one side of the family, you'd be like, Brian, you're looking pretty good. And I am <laughs> compared to some of them. Like, I'm like, I am, I am Hulk Hogan. All right? So, but that being said, we, we battle and we choose to make those battles. But I don't struggle in other things. I don't struggle with drugs. I don't struggle with alcohol. I don't struggle with an inability to give to somebody else. But I have my own struggles. We all got them. And that's okay. But let's shore them up. Let's make them integral. They don't got to not be wet. But they got to be strong enough to hold the house up. We're dishonest with money when we're in love with it. If you're not honest with God about your money, your money has your heart. I'm sorry, but God wants your life right. Say, oh, there it is. The church just wants my money. No, the Lord wants your heart. We must enjoy having guests in our home. This is one I love. We're pretty good at this. Must enjoy having guests in their home. Hospitality. Hospitality is a ministry gifting, but it's also a ministry calling to every believer. Some of you have used the excuse of being an introvert as a way to not allow other believers and people into your lives. The Bible doesn't mention your Enneagram. Just says do it. Hospitality. You better have people in your home and invite them into your life. Doesn't mean you gotta invite the church into your house. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean you have to have a party every day at your house. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean people should be able to come into your home and you host them and pour life and love. Let me give you a quick few tips. My mom is probably the best at hospitality of almost anybody maybe I know at all. You cannot come into my mom's house and not get food and not get something to drink, not get put your feet up, and if you try and help, they're probably gonna tell you to stop. It's just who she is. It's who they are. It's just, it's just a gifting. And the truth is, I picked up more of it. And I'm grateful. Uh, most of the time, you can't come into my house and I'm not going to offer you something to drink, some coffee, place to sit, relax. We're going to talk. Why? Because that's a spiritual standard. And we've made it personality traits. Lie from hell. Some of you are like, well, my home. Look, again, you don't have to open all your homes. If we all open all our homes and nobody goes to any of the others, well, we're still alone. That doesn't work. But the idea that we open up our lives, come on over. Come on in. Some of us have places that are more able to host people than others. I understand that. If you have seven dogs, I love you. I don't want to come. 
And I'm a dog person. But I know what dogs smell like. I have one. If you have seven of them, I know what your home's going to smell like. I love you. Now, that being said, you probably should host it like a dog small group or something. Good for you. Love, love what's good. Live wisely. Be devout and disciplined. All together. Uh, strong belief. You can defend the faith. Just holistically, like, I love what's good. I hate what's evil. I can defend my faith. I know where I stand. I know what I believe. There was a season in my life, and we all do, where you question what you believe biblically and spiritually. Sure. Everybody does. And if you don't, you've not been on this journey very long. You will. But if you do it right, you come out the other side, and you can stand up for what you believe, and you know what you believe. You can never, ever change my mind that there is a better way to live in this life and understand the world than a biblical worldview. You'll never change my mind on it. I will go to the grave that way. There is no other way. There are not many ways to God. There's one. His name is Jesus. There is no other way. That's it. That is the best news ever. It's so good. Devout and disciplined. I had a friend whose wife walked away from the Lord, and she's still away from the Lord, and one day he just kind of woke up, didn't realize, and she would leave for long weekends to go and party and be with people. She would literally just say, hey, I'm leaving with his three kids there, and just take off for the weekend, gone, three, four days. No clue where she is, what she's doing. They eventually, unfortunately, got divorced. And what's kind of cool right now His oldest son is recently coming back to the Lord, and his other two daughters are wrestling and waffling. And I'll tell you why. I bet you they watched their dad be devout and disciplined when their mom was lost and gone. And that's true for all of us. Stand the test of time. I'd rather be boring and secure than flashy and fall apart. This is, this is the thing we become over time. In verse 15, those who are pure in heart aren't afraid. Worship team, you can come on up. When you're solid, you're not afraid anymore. The demons, they don't scare me. They used to. When I didn't know who God was or where I stood with him. Things of this world, they used to freak me out. I used to run from the things of this world. So scared of them. I don't run to them either, but I'm not afraid. You know why? Because I know who I am in Jesus. I know what the devil can do and what he can't do. I know the devil has no influence or opinion or say in my life unless I hand it to him willingly. You can't trick me into believing something because I know who Jesus is and I know what the Bible says and I know who I am. I know I'm a good father. I know I'm not the world's best. I know I'm a good husband and I know I can improve. I know I'm I'm a pretty good pastor and I got a long way to go. And it's okay and godly to know those things when you're pure in heart. See, I'm not saying that out of arrogance. I'm not saying that like, look at me. No. Look at Jesus. Look what he does. Look what he can do. He took a little loser fat kid in his mind that wanted to die and nobody wanted to be his friend and made him somebody who knows who he is in Jesus. He did that. The pure in heart aren't afraid anymore. See, if I built my house on this, I wouldn't be scared of my house coming down. Some of us, some of us are like sand. There's numerous areas in our life where like, God, I need you to shore this up. It's broken. It's not working. It's not built on you. I've been lying to myself. I've been lying to other people. I'm not solid. 
I want to be. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10. Oh